We're going to be in John's Gospel today, John chapter 20, so you could turn there. And as you are, um, last week, uh, many of you, if you're on the prayer chain, if you're not and you'd like to be, you know, let us know and we'll sign you up for that. But little Theodore Scheffner had uh, some seizures and it was a really frightening thing for, of course, mom and dad and the family and they medevaced him down to Children's Hospital and but he's doing well now, so praise the Lord for that. We just pray for continued, uh, yes, healing. And, and then, um, oh, and for those that are being baptized, what's wrong with you people? No, for those of you, <laughs> no, it's going to be special. It is going to be so special for you. You'll never forget it. <laughs> Believe me. But... Um, but if you want to, during the last worship song, so if you need to go get your wetsuit on or something like that, you could go during that last worship song, and then the rest of us will meet you out in the courtyard. Um, on Friday evening, we had our Good Friday service, and oh boy, it was such a blessing. It was such a blessing. You know, I, um, we had all the children up here. Uh, you know, it was suggested that maybe we should turn the TV on so that if kids were, you know, unable to sit through the service, and, and I put my foot down and said, no, no. I said, no, we're just going to leave them in here. And I'm so glad we did, because sometimes we make it so easy for people. And I'll tell you, our kids are able to adapt. They really are. But I'll tell you what was so beautiful about it, to me personally, was as we're worshiping the Lord and just reflecting upon the sufferings of our Lord. I mean, it was just horrible things. And then we, we had an opportunity where we just was, we were giving thanks. And so, um, you know, different people were just speaking out, Lord, thank you for this and thank you for that. And it was just a sweet time. But then you would hear these little voices, wee little voices, little children saying, Lord, thank you for my mommy and daddy. Lord, thank you. And oh, my heart was just melting, you know, at the children. Because you know what? No one had to tell them, go ahead, you know, pray out. They just, everyone else was doing it. They had Thanksgiving that they wanted to speak out to the Lord, and they did it. It was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I was um, watching... Because uh, we live streamed it. We didn't tell anyone we were going to live stream it because we didn't know we were going to live stream it. If we told you, you probably wouldn't have come. But, um, but I was watching the live stream, and as uh, the folks were coming up to get communion, I saw, I saw Keegan, my son-in-law, and his two boys with them, Jan and Danny. And, um, you know, Danny is... Uh, I, he is enthusiastic <laughs> and his eyes are always like this and everything is so exciting, you know. And, and I, I understand he has another side, but um, <laughs> we don't usually see that. But, but his eyes, you know, as he came up with his dad and, and he grabbed a communion cup and he went down. So I, I watched it. I didn't notice it on that evening because I was worshiping the Lord. I wasn't really watching what was happening up here. And so I text Molly and I said, oh, babe, did, um, did Danny take communion? And she said, yes. He said, 
I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins and he rose again on the third day. I want to take communion. And so he was able to take communion. You know, guys, things like that are so special. And, uh, you know, we kind of, we separate the children from this during the teaching because, you know, they're going to learn a lot more down there than they are up here. But I'll tell you, we need to expose our children. You know, a child's first communion, I'm not talking about a Catholic first communion, but a child who, you know, really has placed their faith in the Lord, that is a special thing. That's a beautiful thing. So, anyway. Lord, we pray that you would teach us as we spend time in your word this morning and pray, Lord, that we might glean whatever it is you have for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. The other disciple is John, the writer of this gospel account, whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple and were going together to the tomb. And they both ran together. I'm sorry, I'm adding words here. And they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. That's John. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. Verse 9 is important. It kind of sets everything up here, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Guys, um, last week, of course, we began the Passion Week, and you begin the Passion Week with the triumphal entry of Christ. Triumphal entry of Christ, we, we looked at John's account, and we kinda, I kind of touched on some of the other gospel accounts. But it's, it's safe to say that at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, there were multitudes of people. Multitudes and multitudes of people. In fact, I was thinking between services, who came with Jesus to Jerusalem? We know that Jesus, most of his ministry was done in the Galilee. And of course, they would come to Jerusalem. They were there for Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover and and who came with him? I think it's safe to say, well, well, the, the 12 came with him because we see them, of course, in the gospel accounts that they were there. Um, what about their families? We know that Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law. He had to be married. Did he have children? Did the other disciples have children? Did their families come? Was it 12? Was it 20 or more, counting them? What about the women? We're going to see in a few moments the different women uh, mentioned that were there at the tomb on the morning that Jesus was resurrected. Um, How many of them were there? 
What about those who had been touched by Jesus in the Galilee? They're going to go to the same location. If they're Jewish, they're coming into Jerusalem for unleavened bread and Passover. They probably traveled with Jesus. Former this and former that, former blind people and deaf people and lame people and, and, and people who had leprosy and other conditions, they're coming with Jesus. How about Lazarus? We know he was there because he was one that people wanted to see. You could almost imagine the reporters coming up to Lazarus. And I almost picture him walking maybe alongside Jesus as he's riding on the colt of a donkey, you know. Maybe avoiding Jesus and going up to Lazarus and saying, so tell us, what was it like to be dead for four days? <laughs> Resurrected. But we know from the gospel accounts that many came because they wanted to see Lazarus the man who was dead and then resurrected. How many people came? Did Lazarus have a family? We know he had two sisters. They would have been there. What about the multitude of disciples? We know that Jesus had many disciples. There were many people who believed in him. And, and we say that you know, with the understanding their belief was limited. They did not really know that they needed to believe that he would die for their sins or that he would be resurrected on the third day. His own disciples didn't even know that, though Jesus had told them on at least three occasions. They either weren't paying attention or they just couldn't grasp it because it just seemed too out there, you know. But I wonder who came with Jesus. Was it 50 people, 100 people, a couple of hundred people, a thousand people coming with Jesus? At the triumphal entry, there were multitudes gathered. At the resurrection, there were very few that were there. In fact, when you look at the four gospel accounts, Matthew tells us that there were two women. He mentions two women, uh, Mary Magdalene being one of them, two women being at the tomb. Matthew tells us, of three women, one of them being Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Luke mentions at least five women, Mary Magdalene, of course, being one of the five or more. He makes reference to and other women. So we know there was more than just one woman. And then you get to John's gospel account, and we just read it. John writes his gospel account as if there was only one. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, we know, there's certain things we know. We know that John knew how many women were there. Uh, we know that, that John was not, you know, out of the loop and didn't get the memo, you know, that, that, that Mary Magdalene was not the only woman there. And yet, in his gospel account, he writes as if she's the only person there. And I think John, as he's being led by the Holy Spirit, writes about only one because ultimately it comes down to the one, to the one. I'll come back to that in a moment. It's interesting, we've looked at this before, but you know, the, the Bible is so enjoyable. It is not a boring book, <laughs> it is alive. And when we read the Bible, you know, there are times that we find humor in the Bible, not because it's ridiculous, but because there's humor in it. Other times we read and there's sadness and, and there's joy and there's all sorts of things. I mean, the whole gamut of emotions, we, we see them presented in 
the scriptures. But I think it's apparent, uh, just from the text that we just read, that there was competition between John and Peter. And we've noted this before. In fact, remember at the end of John's gospel account, when, um, when the Lord told Peter how he would die, remember that? And remember what Peter's first question was? It wasn't like, oh, Lord, please let me die any other way than that. No, he doesn't ask that. He says, what about him? <laughs> he, he wants to know, how's John going to die, you know? And so we know that there was a bit of rivalry between them. John, of course, is the author of the Gospel of John, John the Beloved, and he tells us that, that he and Peter began running together. I think that's interesting to just kind of note. They started out together. We see that in verse 4. But then, in essence, he says, but, um, you know, I'm faster than Peter. <laughs> because he said that he outran Peter in verse 4. And uh, he tells us that he came to the tomb first. And he doesn't just say that once. He says that twice. The exact same statement. He says that in verse 4 and also in verse 8. And then John tells us that, you know, eventually Peter kind of caught up, you know, following. He finally gets out of there. And you kinda, as you read the text, you kind of picture, you know, Peter, you know, he finally gets there. He's like, <sighs> you know, and John's all, that's <laughs> great, everything. But there was surely a rivalry. I think it must have killed John to admit that Peter went into the tomb first. And you wonder what it was. Was it fear? You know, guys, you look at the different gospel writers, and we, we kind of get to know, as students of the Bible, their personalities a bit, you know? We know that John and his brother James were called, they were nicknamed Sons of Thunder. It almost sounds like a, a biker club or something, you know. I don't think it meant that they were uh, just rambunctious. I think that they were, you know, probably wanting to, you know, Lord, shall we call down fire and smoke this town? You know, I mean, they just kind of had a fiery... But, you know, when you go on and you see John in his gospel, which was written much later after the events took place, or his first epistle and his second and third epistle. I'll tell you, when I look at John from those epistles and even from his gospel account, to me, I just think, man, John was a lover. He was a lover more than a fighter. And I think he might have started out as a fighter. And the Lord had transformed his life so much that he just became a lover. And he was just so amazed that the Lord loved him. That's why he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He wasn't saying Jesus didn't love the other guys. He was just simply saying, I can't believe that he loved me. Well, and then there was one. And it always comes down to the one. It's not the masses. It's not the multitudes, it's not the group, but the one. I think that's why the Holy Spirit had John write his gospel account and in this particular case here concerning the tomb in the way he wrote it, it comes down to one. John describes Mary Magdalene's uh, experience, her own personal experience, as if she was the only one there. There's no one else mentioned here in our text. Though they're referred to, if you look closely, 
John wrote as if Mary Magdalene was the only one there. Uh, Mary Magdalene, we know something about her too, because you know she is named, she is mentioned in the in the New Testament quite often in the Gospel accounts. Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdala. Uh, that's not her, you know, first and last name. Her name was Mary. And because there were so many Marys, you know, I mean, there was Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was Mary, the mother of Bethany. There was the other Marys. There was, you know, I mean, Mary was a very, very common name. But she was Mary of Magdalene, uh, or Mary Magdalene. She, um, she's, she's always thought of as being a prostitute. But do you know that the Bible never says that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute? Not at all. Some, even within Catholicism, <clears throat> now I don't know how they get around this one. They confuse Mary Magdalene with Mary of Bethany, saying that they are one and the same woman. Wow. Others say, same group, say uh, Mary Magdalene was that unnamed woman who came to the house of Simon when Jesus was having dinner there and anointed Jesus' feet. Remember that story? And the Pharisee, you know, said if he knew, if he was a prophet of God, and if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. But again, you know, the scripture doesn't say that was Mary Magdalene. In fact, every time Mary Magdalene is mentioned, she's named Mary Magdalene. So I think it would be safe to say, because the scriptures the accounts were written long after the event that they would have said, this is when Jesus first met Mary Magdalene. She came into the house and anointed his feet. Scripture doesn't do that. Mary loved Jesus. She didn't love Jesus in the way that Dan Brown and others uh, tried to present their relationship as if they were involved or married even. You know, there's such a thing as love without it being a sexual thing. She loved him. She was devoted to him. She was no doubt distressed that she could not give Jesus' body a proper burial. Guys, remember that when they took Jesus down from the cross, they had to do it in haste because of the hour, because of, uh, you know, the... the uh, Passover and all, they had to take the body down in haste. And, um, and, and Mary was there, we're told from Matthew's gospel account, that Mary was there. She was sitting actually opposite of the tomb when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea brought the lifeless body of Jesus and laid it in that tomb. And remember, all they could do because of time was they... Uh, stripped down the body, there wouldn't have been much to strip down because he was probably close to naked as he was hanging upon the cross. And they probably took some water and they washed the body as much as they could wash the body. And then they wrapped the body in linen cloth. And then they took a cloth and they wrapped it around his head to keep the jaw from opening. That's mentioned, of course, in our text. Um... That's the last time she saw the body of Jesus. He was dead. And so no doubt she and the other women that are mentioned in the different gospel accounts, they probably spent 
the evening after sunset, Saturday after sunset, they probably spent the entire evening preparing the ointment so that they could give Jesus a proper burial. You know, they would not uh, cremate, they would not uh, embalm, they would, they would just simply put spices and ointments on the body. And in essence, all it did is to kind of retard the stench of death. And so they wanted to do that. And obviously, because she loved the Lord so much, and not only her, the other women as well, they loved him so much. The scripture says that these women, they traveled with Jesus, and they cared for Jesus. They ministered to Jesus. He was ministering to them, and they were ministering to him. It was just this beautiful, beautiful family, if you will. But no doubt, Mary was frustrated. She arrives there. The stone is rolled away. She's concerned about the stone. Uh, who's going to roll away the stone? She probably expected to find the Roman soldiers there, you know, guarding the tomb or the guards, uh, whoever was guarding the tomb at that time. And yet it's empty. Everyone's gone, and uh, the stone's rolled away, and, uh, and the body of Jesus is gone. And you just picture her being so distraught. And I can't help but wonder if, if Mary just kind of sat down. Maybe she took that seat, you know, that place across from the opposite, the, the, the tomb. Maybe she sat there again, and she just began to weep. And I wonder what she might have been thinking as she was weeping. I wonder if she was thinking of the first time she met Jesus. Luke tells us that Mary Magdalene had demons, and that, obviously, Jesus had cast out the demons from her body. I, I can't imagine. What would that have been like? What kind of life would she have lived? She could have been a prostitute. The scripture doesn't say she was a prostitute, though. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's not read into the text. But she could have done some really sad and horrible things as these demons were controlling her and directing her and leading her. What a sad, what a sad existence. And she's weeping and she's sitting there. And I wonder, I wonder if she thought to herself, he gave me my life back. What am I going to do without him? Guys, we need to keep verse 9 in frame here. As of yet, they did not know the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. See, we can be so judgmental of the Bible characters, and we do that, don't we? I used to do that as a young Christian. I'd read through the Old Testament and say, what's wrong with these Jews? Come on, you know, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, manna from heaven, quails coming down, eating till meat comes out of your nostrils, fiery serpents, look at the serpent on the pole, you know, all of it. Come on, what's wrong with you guys? And then I started growing in my faith and realized I'm, I'm no different than them. And we can so easily look at the New Testament, the gospel accounts, and say, what's wrong with these men? What's wrong with these women? They were the closest to Jesus. Jesus spoke to them about what was going to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem. We're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to crucify me. But on the third day, I'll rise again. 
And it just seems to go in one ear and out the other ear. Do you ever have occasions, you know, I think married couples do. Tracy and I do this all the time. Remember when I said, no, I don't remember that at all. I have no recollection of that. I just, we just had that conversation. I don't remember, I'm sorry. <laughs> I see all of you are looking at each other that are married because it's a common occurrence. Anyway. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the, looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting. Now, guys, listen. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you know when people had encounters with angels, it was like a really big deal? And she seems completely unmoved by this whole thing. <laughs> I mean, she is preoccupied. And, and one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? You kind of wonder if she held back. Maybe she wanted to snap at that angel and say, what a dumb question. Why do you think I'm weeping, you know? But she answered and she said, because they have taken away my Lord. It's so sad. I mean, it really is. It's so sad. No, we know the rest of the story. We know there's a resurrection and everything. But guys, sometimes as Christians, we need to stop in the moment and read the scriptures and just kind of imagine what it must have been like. That feeling. And some of us can. If you've had anyone that's died, you know the feeling, that emptiness, that hollowness of It's done. It's over. Now, as Christians, we say, oh, I'll see him again. We know that. There are times that we know things, and there are times that our feelings override what we know. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I read the words, and it, to me, it's just so emotional because Jesus knows the trauma she's in. He knows just what she's feeling, that she's dying a thousand deaths inside, that she's so lonely for the one who's talking to her. And she doesn't even know it's Jesus because she's on mission. And when you're on mission, sometimes you're not aware of what's happening around you. And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. You know, guys, that's sad. Isn't that sad? It's kind of a weird question. And if you've ever experienced it, it's probably something you don't want to remember. But have you ever tried to lift a dead body? I remember when my mom died, she was skin and bones. She was a little lady. And I'll tell you, just that dead weight. Because it's just dead weight. And I think of Mary, she's asking who she thinks is the gardener, it's her Lord. She's asking him where the body is so that she could go and take him. Impossible. Mary. But I'll tell you, when you're in grief, you're not thinking about the possible things. Verse 16 is beautiful. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
Mary. Mary. Your name. Sometimes Tracy will, because she knows that if I'm asleep, if she wakes me, sometimes I just kind of like freak out. And she was, it, it scares her, and she says, oh, gosh, you always do that. And I'm saying, but, but she'll come in sometimes and say, Danny. And in my head, it sounds like, Danny. <laughs> what? Your name. You know, um, Jesus said, let me find it. Oh, it's Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus says, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. As Christians, have you ever heard the Lord? And I'm not, again, I'm not saying with your ears, but with your heart. The Lord call your name. It just, it's like, the Lord just wants to. I remember in my life different times. I remember one time my dad and I, we were, our relationship was not good at all. And I remember we were forced to talk on the phone because my mother was extremely sick. We thought she was dying. And, um, we finished our conversation, and my dad stopped, and he said, Danny? And when he said my name, it was like my whole body just, I just kind of knew, okay, dad's going to say something now, and I've been waiting for this, and here it is, and it was just, and I remember my mom, you know, many times she would call, she would say, Danny? And again, there would be a reaction. There was almost like just hearing my name from certain people. You know, I kind of joked about Tracy trying to wake me up, but there's something sweet about a spouse who, Tracy, Danny, I'm sorry, speaks your name. I don't know, I, maybe I'm just weird, but, but I, I just like camping out on, on things like this because I, I just kind of like soaking it in rather than just reading it like a textbook to think, no, these are real people. These are real people. These are real experiences that were taking place. And he said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him, Roboni, which is to say teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father. Listen, I am ascending to my father and your father. And to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Something happened. Something happened between verse 
16 and the beginning of verse 17. I mean, we've got one verse there, and, and he says her name, and apparently she just kind of, you know, like jumps and, and latches onto him, and she's clinging to him, because the very next words that Jesus says, don't cling to me. You know, I need to ascend. I haven't ascended yet. I'm going to ascend, you know. There'll be plenty of time to cling in the future. And then there was one. That's what I got as this year as I was reading the text. And then there was one. I think of Mary. When I read this, and, and, and the way that John presents it, he doesn't present two women or three women or, or at least five women, but he presents one woman. He presents Mary Magdalene. She's there at the tomb. It's empty. She's the first, apparently, to see Jesus, to speak to Jesus, to touch Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And, and to me, as I read that, I, I just thought to myself, it doesn't matter if the masses believe in Jesus. And it doesn't matter if the multitudes can't live without him. And it doesn't matter if groups of people cling to him. It comes down to the one. It comes down to the one. You know, guys, this is a pattern that we see throughout the scriptures. I mean, we're going through John's gospel. I don't even remember. It's been a few weeks since we've been in John. I don't even know where we're at. Are we still in John 3? Anyway, I'll, I'll figure it out. But... But in John chapter 3, we have Nicodemus. He's a religious teacher of Israel. He is the religious teacher of Israel. He comes to Jesus, and he tries to make it about a group. Do you know what I'm referring to? He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know you're a teacher come from God. What does Jesus do? He brings it right back to the one. He brings it right back to Nicodemus. It's almost as if he's saying, Nick, I'm not speaking to a group here. I'm speaking to you. You say, oh, you're reading into the text. Well, the text goes on to say that Jesus said, I say to you. And then once again, I say to you. He's talking to Nicodemus. And then a third time, I said to you, you must be born again. Guys, listen, Jesus did not say, the world must be born again. Though the people of the world must be born again. He did not say that. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be saved. It always comes down to the one. John chapter 4, another beautiful, beautiful encounter that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. Again, guys, this is why you need to be diligent students of the Bible to understand, to appreciate the dynamics of what's happening. Samaritans and Jews do not get along. They hate each other. Jews see the Samaritans as half-breeds. You are the byproduct of the Assyrians coming in. You're, you know, the Assyrians took the Hebrew wives. They had children. These Samaritans, they can't even speak the language. Oh, gosh. Scourge of our land. And we see the Samaritan woman, and she comes to the well. Of course, she finds Jesus there alone. Do you ever stop and think, how many disciples does it take to go get food? But they're all gone, and Jesus is left there alone. And I think it's on purpose. But look what she said. She tried to make it about a group. 
She said, our fathers worship on this mountain. Remember what Jesus did? He corrected. He says, well, salvation comes from the Jews. I mean, he doesn't, you know, kind of, he's not politically correct. He kind of sets her straight. But then he says, he brings it right back to her. He brings it right back to the one. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It comes down to the one Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Do you remember who Jesus first revealed his true identity to? Her, a Samaritan woman. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Guys, it's mind-blowing. The Bible is not boring. The Bible is so exciting. One more example. I could just keep going, but we've got a baptism to do. Or Nate has a baptism to do. In John chapter 5, we have the man at the pool of Bethesda. He has an infirmity for 38 years. His condition is so bad that that he can't, he can't get into the water when the water is stirred up by the angels. That's going to be interesting when we, when we look at that text. But again, he tried to make it about somebody else, about others. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And Jesus, he brought it right back to him, to the one. Rise. Take up your bed. It's your bed, man. Take up your bed and walk. Are you following where I'm going with this, guys? Listen, nobody, nobody can take your place. It comes down to you and the Lord. When we stand before, for the believer, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat, for the non-believer, the great white throne judgment, we're not standing there with a group of people. We're not standing there with the masses. We're not standing there with our generation and saying, well, hey, you know, our generation was woke. I can't, I, I, I can't help it that I couldn't believe in you. It just was not intellectually, you know, something that I could do. No, you'll be standing alone. It comes down to the one, to the individual. I, it comes down to the one and the one. Now you say, oh gosh, what are you saying now? This makes no sense. It comes down to the one. I was, I was looking at some pictures yesterday of old basketball players. Uh, Joshua, our oldest, was a basketball player. He loved basketball when he was in middle school. And so I was looking at, because I had seen him at a, um, at a, <laughs> where planes go, airport. I was saw him at an airport. Uh, Tracy and I were in LA a few years back, and it was Bill Walton. Bill Walton, a professional basketball player. He had a Grateful Dead t-shirt on. 
he was coming out of the bathroom as I was going into the bathroom. I said, oh, hey. He goes, anyway. Um, so using that analogy, one-on-one, one-on-one. You say, what are you talking about? Jesus said, I am the one. Remember? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, listen. No one can come to the Father except through me. No one. Have you asked the Lord to forgive you? Listen. Your mom, your dad, if they're saved and you're not, they're praying fervently that you would surrender your life to Christ. But that's all they can do. They can't believe for you. They can't say, Lord, save my son. You have to be the one who says, Lord, save me. You're the one that needs to acknowledge your sin. You're the one that needs to personally ask him to save you, to forgive you of your sins. No one else can do it but you. So it's Easter Sunday. I look around. I know the majority of you. But, you know, only you and maybe not even you know your own heart. I was exhorting the ministry people this morning about examining ourselves to, to, to make sure that we're truly in the faith. You know, you guys could come up for the last song. Um, but it's something that we need to, you know, we need to do. We need to, we need to ponder. Do you ever, um, do you ever in your devotion time, I think a lot of Christians race through, through a devotion because they think they have to do devotion, which you don't have to do devotion, and to race through it is just so automatic, you're probably not getting anything out of it, so it'd probably be better not to do it at all. Because you're gonna come away thinking, the Bible's boring, and the Bible's not boring. But if you take time, you find a quiet place, you sit down, you have your devotion, you read the scriptures, you're thinking upon them, do you ever stop and just think, what would my life be, be like if I hadn't met Jesus? Do you ever do that? I think it's healthy to do that. What would my life be like? Especially if, if you've you know, walked with the Lord and you've seen the blessings of God. Any Christian, they would never tell you, yes, since I've given my life to the Lord, you know, I've never had a problem <laughs> since that day. Because that's not true. We have many trials and tribulations. But we just see them through a different lens. But I'll tell you, we need to be a people who, who really think about those things. I wonder if Mary, you know, if she was sitting there before the whole interaction with the gardener, Jesus, if she was thinking, I remember when I met him. I remember what had happened. I, I, I remember his authority when he spoke to those demons within me and, and he seemed so forceful and, and frightening. But toward them, not toward me, toward me there was 
there was kindness and there was love and and I, I just will never forget that. And I, how can I live without him? Thinking that he's gone now, you know. Anyway, I've rambled enough. If you're getting baptized and you need to change, you can go do that now. The rest of you, would you please stand with me? Father, we pray that, Lord, uh, we pray for those that are being baptized today. It's going to be cold and windy. And, uh, but we just pray that it's special for them, Lord. We pray that you would encourage them. It's a step of obedience, Lord. It's not a means of salvation, but it's because they're saved, because they've believed in the finished work of you, Lord. So bless them, bless them, bless them. And we pray, Father, for the rest of us, that we would examine ourselves from time to time. We pray that for the rest of us, we would ask those questions of ourselves. Uh, from time to time, what would I, where would I be if I didn't have Jesus? Where would I be if I didn't have salvation that comes through him only? Where would I be? Where would I be? And then we'd ponder those questions. And as we ponder those questions, Lord, I, I, I know that the byproduct, it will always be the same. There will be the outburst of praise and thanksgiving, when we ask the question, where would I be without Jesus, there will always be that response, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for my life. Thank you for redeeming my life. Thank you for the changed life that you brought about by your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for renewing my mind by your word. Thank you, Lord, for putting within me a hope, not just for today or tomorrow, but a future hope for all eternity. Thank you, Lord. We pray if there are any here or any listening that have not surrendered, that have not placed their faith in you, that they would, that it would ring in their ears. It comes down to one. No one can believe for them. It comes down to one. And that they would respond to you, the one. In Jesus' name, amen.